This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Do you enjoy true stories of the supernatural from the people who experienced it? Well, then you might like my show, Jim Harold's Campfire. Hi, I'm Jim, and we've been doing the show since 2009. And we talk about ghosts, cryptid creatures, UFOs, head scratchers, you name it. And you tune in and you might hear a story like this one. And as he was driving home, he encountered a shadow person who seemed to be dressed like a monk. I know that sounds very strange, um, but it was a solid black form and it was wearing a hooded cloak tied at the waist with the cloak up and it had glowing red eyes. He sees this thing coming out of a really teeny abandoned cemetery If you haven't tuned in, I hope you'll check us out. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are heard. It's Jim Harold's Campfire, and you can find it at JimHarold.com. Thanks so much, and stay spooky. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. MJ, thank you so much for joining me today. It is my pleasure to be here. It is always an honor to be on your show, Ryan. Oh, thank you so much, man. I know uh, whenever I ask people which episodes are their favorite, way more than any other, I've gotten any conversation with you. So it is my honor to have you back on. This is going to be sort of a unofficial somewhere in the whiskey. We're both drinking water tonight. So I guess it's somewhere in the H2O, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, somewhere in the nursing a hangover. <laughs> exactly. <No. laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's it's this. I think I'm going to go with this uh, episode being titled aptly The UFO People, because today we're going to be talking mostly about your upcoming book, The UFO People, A Curious Culture. But before we get to that, I would love to discuss your latest article over at Terra Obscura titled, Is the Military Stovepiping UFO Programs? This was really interesting, man. Some stuff you were able to dig up, uh, and Paul Dean as well, whom I know was featured in your book heavily. Um, this has to do with To the Stars. Well, not really To the Stars, more ATIP and um, OSAP. So what was this recent article all about that you, uh, that you wrote over there at Terra Obscura? Sure. Um, so Paul Dean wrote a great blog post. And, and for any of your listeners who have not sort of read any of Paul Dean's work, he runs uh, a great blog called UFOs Documenting the Evidence. So if you just Google that or if you just Google UFOs Paul Dean, 
Um, his blog is stupendous because he's sort of one of the few sort of UFO historians out there that does archival UFO work. So he'll dig up and he'll do FOIA requests and he'll dig up old documents and sort of piece things together. And the guy's brain, like when you, when you speak to him, he knows everything there's to know about the government in regards to UFOs. And he can cite, like he can say document numbers and department numbers and, and all of these different things that like your, your, your brain spins when you speak to him, but he's an expert archivist. Um, and he just, and he sort of put together via sort of old documents he had. And then some recent FOIA sort of documents that came in. Um, he, he started to realize that a lot of the language that, um, the eight tip program used. And again, that's the, the most recent sort of Pentagon um, UFO program that just was sort of talked about by the New York times in, in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, he started to, he sort of put together that the eight tip program and then it's sort of predecessor of the OSAP program um, used very similar language to that of NASIC. So um, Paul Dean discovered that there was this uh, air force, um, I guess, program slash i don't know department um called oh god of course i can't remember the name the north is it north american i have to look it up now yeah right it's like yeah i totally just forgot the (laughs) national air and space intelligence center um and they operate out of um wright patterson air force base i believe um and their entire game is to basically it's an they're an intelligence organization, um, and they analyze foreign air and foreign space. I don't know threats. Let's say so. They're always on the hunt for intelligence regarding sort of the newest and latest technology regarding you know intercontinental ballistic missiles, satellites, that type of thing. But in their program sort of language, the sort of about us section, let's say of, of their department, um, they use very similar phrases to that of ATIP, something like advanced aerial threats. And they, they talk about exotic aerial threats or um, advanced propulsion and stuff like this. And a lot of the buzzwords that has recently come out as a result of ATIP and OSAP and the TTSA sort of, um, sort of media push, um, a lot of the lingo is similar. So what Paul Dean kind of points out is, well, you know, NASIC has been around for quite some time since sort of the 1950s and 60s. It had it's had different names, but ultimately he can sort of trace the, the progression of this program since the early 60s and 70s. Mm. Um, and ATIP is a relatively new program sort of starting, I th- we think, generally around 2000 and what, 2010-ish? Right. Maybe late 2012 or something to that effect. Um, so, you know, he's kind of questioning, you know, are there other organizations or other programs similar to NASIC, similar to ATIP, and similar to OSAP that sort of do um, exploration and examination of the UFO phenomenon, or at least advanced aerial threats that are unknown. Um, And and that's kind of, you know, Paul doesn't speculate very much. So when he wrote his article, all he really stipulated was, you know, listen, I found similarities between the ATIP and OSAP programs and their verbiage and lingo use and their mission statements. Um, and they're very similar to the mission statements and jargon and lingo of NASIC. Um, so my article was sort of taking some of his information and sort of uh, bringing it to Dr. Hal Putoff of Earth Tech International, as well as he's the VP of um, 
TTSA, right? Yeah, Science and Technology, I believe. Science and yeah. Technology. Um, and, and just sort of, you know, presenting this to him and, and, and saying, hey, um, you know, Hal, have you seen this? And, and, and what do you think of it? And, and can I ask you a few questions about it? And um, Hal was good enough to sort of uh, answer a few questions and, and give me a few quotes for, for a blog post. Um, and ultimately, sort of according to, to Hal, as well as according to, to Paul, um, there's clearly, you know, a lot of interest from the military and the government in regards to advanced sort of anomalous aerial phenomena um the problem is it's all very stovepiped so all of these organizations don't necessarily know what anyone else is doing or if they do know they have different objectives and different projects so they're they're interested in what everyone else is doing but they don't talk to each other because they have different objectives um so NASIC might not really have an interest in what ATIP was doing uh, or, you know, um, NASIC might not have an interest in what OSAP was up to mm-hmm. because ultimately they're sort of already doing it. And they may already have a certain set of data that they're working from um, and, and they're not going to share it with ATIP because their missions aren't the same, for right. example. And, and or, I would assume, too, like they each program is trying to get different kind of funding and everything too. So, you know, that wordage probably has a lot to do with it too. It is interesting though, that they do use a lot of the same wordage. Yeah. And and one thing we need to be clear about in regards to NASIC, NASIC isn't like, isn't looking to get funding. Like NASIC is heavily funded compared to like ATIP and OSAP. I mean, we know it's public knowledge now that the ATIP program or whatever it is, a OSAP ATIP program, whatever the actual truth behind any of that is, was only funded for about $22 million, which is, you know, a decent chunk of change. And I'll the purpose of these, pro- yeah, exactly. The purpose of these programs was to sort of write, um, reports like department reports on, on, uh, exotic physics and exotic technology and, and, and anomalous phenomena. Fine. But it was only funded at $22 million. Whereas a NASIC's funding is, massive like nasix funding is one unknown um because it's not public most of their work if not all of their work is classified i've emailed and contacted several people in nasic and none of them have returned my my contacts now listen i get it i'm a nobody but they're also not going to right ultimately you know what some you know ufo writer journalist wants is is not on their priority list but mm-hmm. um their funding is going to definitely be in the billions of dollars annually. Um, but they're also responsible for keeping tabs on every other country's, you know, aerospace and space programs. Um, so they're definitely going to have a, a fair share of cash. Um, but this comes up in my book, and this is sort of why I, I chose to, to write this post. Um, in my book, I feature a lot of interviews from individuals who were involved in the in the ATIP program, like Kit Green, like um, Hal Putoff, and um, they sort of both say, say a similar thing in, in the sense that um, when it comes to intelligence gathering regarding anomalous phenomena, you know, the right hand doesn't always know what the left hand is doing, and when it comes to the military and the government. Um, we're not dealing with two hands here. We're dealing with a few hundred hands and, and they, they don't necessarily talk to each other. Um, so, you know, if there is a UFO or, um, uh, if there is sort of a, a conspiracy, let's say regarding, you know, UAP, um, the conspiracy is broken up across hundreds of potential departments and no one knows what anyone else knows, right? Like there's no one grand conspiracy, right. um, 
the data is all over the place. Um, and and the, the people who hold the data don't exactly know who else has data and what that data is. So it's all over the map. Right. Um, and, and they're not necessarily talking to each other either. Um, it's all stovepiped, basically. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it, it, you know, I just conjure this image of like in a blind octopus, you know, it's got like every tentacle has a little bit, but nobody really yeah. knows where they're going and uh, what they're doing and uh, what the phenomenon represents and what threat it poses. Yeah, it's, it's it's all very fascinating. And I found it really interesting that like you said, nasic has been going on for so long. So clearly, this is like, where the deep classified stuff is going on whereas something like a tip um eventually became declassified so that's why we're hearing about everything going on with that so i can only imagine right. what's going on with nasic for sure yeah yeah and part of you know part of you may not want to know right like there's I also so. i'm sure they, they deal with it's like you know <laughs> they have you know intelligence operatives who know exactly you know what the russians have or the chinese have and and you just wouldn't sleep anymore at mm-hmm. night knowing that you know there's something pointed at your house <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know that you know if that thing went off um you know you don't exist anymore you know i think that they probably hold a lot of secrets that probably ought to be kept secret exactly much more scarier than any uh you know little flying saucer with little green men could be i'm sure <laughs> yeah that's right awesome well okay so moving on to your book, MJ, the title first and foremost is what caught my attention, uh, which is, um, you know, the UFO people, a curious culture. So can you tell us how that title of your book, why you chose this, a curious culture? I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. You would, you know this. I mean, you wrote a book. So anyone <laughs> who's written a book out there, you know that you start off when you start talking to uh, you know potentially a publisher or an editor about your book and you're pitching the idea um it starts off as one thing you know you have this this is what i want to write and then several years go by of you writing it and then suddenly it's something totally different right like it's never what you think it's going to be so i think the original title for my book was was something ridiculous like it was like the initial pitch was something like it was going to be partially a philosophical text and partially sort of a journey book which it still sort of is. It's a bit of a journey narrative to it, but it was like the gentleman's guide to UFOs. And then my publisher was like, well, okay, hold on. Don't use gentleman <laughs> because you're going to alienate 50% of the, like, you're right. That's totally true. I didn't even think of it. Okay. Let's do like the outsider's guide or something like that. Right. Yeah. And it was going to be this silly title that was stupid. Um, and it, it, it just didn't, ha- it, yeah, it was just, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, <laughs> it, it never worked out. And, um, I was, as I was writing the book, I started to realize that my book wasn't about UFOs at all. Um, and it isn't. My book's about people. And it's about people who pursue the UFO phenomenon. Um, and I also wanted the book to be approachable to people who both sort of um, pursue the UFO phenomenon with incredible belief and, and vigor and zeal. And I wanted my book to appeal as well to skeptics and debunkers who, who would sort of maybe enjoy the more sociological aspects of the book. Um, and I was sitting there and I, and I was, you know, racking my brain for a title. And then, um, I I don't know what happened. I think I was, I was looking at Mark O'Connell's website. He wrote the close encounters man. Mm -hmm or something like I was somewhere on the internet looking at UFO stuff. And then I, I stumbled into the picture of J. Allen Hynek standing in front of the Waltrip motel sign outside of Piedmont, Missouri in 1973. So it's a famous UFO sort of historical yeah, picture. And, it's, you know, yep. Allen Hynek. 
and he's standing in front of because he went there was a UFO flap in Missouri, um, and he and uh, uh, an associate of his by the name of Ted Phillips who took the picture um, went to investigate this UFO flap um, in '73, and the town because of this flap. The, the, the motel put up this big sign that said, welcome UFO people. <laughs> and it's this big billboard that Jay on Hynek is standing in front of sort of a, this big goggle sunglasses on his face. Um, and it's, it's such a glorious picture um, because it encapsulates, I think what the book's about, right? Um, individuals who will go to some, town in the middle of nowhere missouri because there's ufos there and allocate weeks of their life to investigating it um and they're driven by something right like mm-hmm. there's something to the phenomenon that drives people to it um or maybe pulls people to it i don't know but this picture was sort of perfect and i saw it and it just hit me i was like yep yeah, there's the title right there the ufo people um and then the curious culture just kind of came right after because it's kind of it just kind of flowed i suppose um and it was it was great you know and actually the the cover isn't public yet um it's almost ready it's just kind of being finalized by the publisher but the cover does have that photograph on it um and i was lucky enough to to get in touch with ted phillips and his wife who who graciously gave me permission to use the photograph for the cover um so it was really neat to to you know, talk to his wife and, 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 and when I was speaking to his wife, his, he was quite, he's quite ill. Um, so, you know, it was fine. And, 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 you know, they, they sort of gave the book the blessing, you know, and then it was very funny. Promptly she gave me her home address and was like, I expect a copy. Oh, I was like, no yeah. problem, you know, like, um, so, um, oh, so cool, she gets the yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is. For for those in the UFO field, it's such an iconic image of Dr. J. Allen Hynek. And like you said, it represents everything your book sort of stands for. You've got the UFO people, both being those experiencing it and those researching it. And that's kind of what really, really pulled me in. Right from the introduction of your book, you refer to the... uh, the UFO phenomenon and the UFO subculture as ghosts within our everyday society, which is really cool. I've never really thought of it that way. And you use the, you sort of work off of the French philosopher uh, Jacques Derrida. So could you maybe run us through why you chose his foundations of philosophy? I know philosophy is a big thing with you, and that's why I love having you on, man. (laughs) So why did you choose to sort of use this foundation for this subculture of ufology, I guess? Yeah, I think, you know, if for, for your longtime listeners and, and all the shows I've sort of been on previously on Somewhere in the Skies, I think they've sort of heard me say it many times, but I, I'm, I'm very confident that ufology is actually philosophy. Mm-hmm. If ufology is a thing, like I'm, I'm going to sort of argue a bit that there really is no ufology proper, but the, 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 the art of engaging with the UFO phenomenon or, or UFO discourse is really a philosophical project. Um, so finding a philosopher who who deals with culture the same way sort of I interpret culture was 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 not easy and 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 reading Derrida is is always a struggle um, because he doesn't make sense <laughs> but maybe that's purposeful um, but his his claim I suppose is that the way we interpret reality. Um, is all mediated by language and how we make and give things meaning. Mm. Um, so, so Derrida's project is um, 
anytime you give anything meaning or definition, you are creating a reality for it. Um, so Derrida would say, listen, reality is real in the sense that, you know, things exist in the universe and, 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 you know, objects are there, like there is an objective reality, but without us, it really has no meaning. We apply meaning to everything around us. So uh, a coffee cup is a coffee cup, not because of some objective coffee cupness. It's a coffee cup because we say it's a coffee cup. Mm-hmm. Um, and in regards to to his his whole philosophical project, is he says, you know, whenever you deal with any meaning whatsoever in reality, you can tear that meaning down and what he terms deconstruct it. So you can kind of go through why certain ideas we have have the ideas that sort of are in them. Um, you know, why are, um, why is the masculine masculine or why is the feminine feminine? We can break those ideas down and see where they came from. Um, we sort of create meaning in turn, but ultimately we can kind of start to chip away at the different, um, layers and filters we've applied to the world around us. Um, and he says there's sort of one thing though, that, that typically defies meaning. And he sort of creates this thing, um, as a as a sort of undefinable thing or an undeconstructible thing, and he says the ghost is a great example of this, right? A specter is something that um, cannot be, I guess, deconstructed mm-hmm. because it exists and it does not exist, right? Ghosts, by their very nature, are real and not real. They're fact and fiction. They're 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 reality and mythology simultaneously, and we can't necessarily kind of break them down. Mm-hmm. And in 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 his philosophical project, he's really talking about sort of not really ghosts as like the spirits of the dead, but he talks about ghosts more as sort of our shared experiences as a society. And it gets all quite philosophical. And I go through that in the book, but to sort of quickly boil this down, um, the UFO community is sort of similar to his notion of the ghost. The UFO community exists and it does not exist. Very similarly, just like the UFO, the UFO exists and does not exist. It's a specter. It shows up um, and it disappears. Um, it, 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 to, to a lot of people, it's real. It's a real physical object that's tangible, that they can touch, they've been aboard, that they've experienced um, in some way. Um, not just seeing it, but engaging with it, communing with it in some way. But to others, um, the UFO is a myth. It's, it's folk tale. It's, it's just lore. It's, it's um, mythology, right? Mm-hmm. So the UFO exists in this dual state. And the people who pursue UFOs, you know, us, the UFO people, um, we're also ghosts. Um, We sort of haunt mainstream culture and popular culture. Um, We have our feet in two worlds, right? We, um, on the one hand, we go to Starbucks and drink coffee. We drive our kids to dance class. You know, we we buy minivans and 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 apartments and houses, and we have day jobs and we and we have a bank account and pay our mortgage. Like you know, we live that life, that normal daily sort of what we would deem real life, quote unquote. But then on the flip side, we're also a group of people who believe in things that ought not to exist, right? We believe in UFOs and we believe in ghosts and we believe in potentially Bigfoot and all of these other paranormal phenomena um, that challenge the other side, right? They challenge the idea of you should go to Starbucks and have a mortgage and drive your kids to dance class. Um, They challenge the very fabric of our daily lives. So how do we reconcile this, right? How do we as people who believe in flying saucers and UFOs and interdimensional beings reconcile the fact that I still like pay a mortgage and have a bank account and for some reason like go to work every day um, and like to what end, right? Um, 
so we we get stuck in this ghostly realm, this in between realm of of our daily lives that we would say are real is real, and then this UFO world that we would say is real, um, and they're in incredible conflict with each other, um, believing that there's a non-human t- intelligence and a phenomenon that's real really ought to challenge the fact that you go to work every day to earn a paycheck so you can buy Air Jordans, right? <laughs> like it really should challenge these ideas. Right. Um, it should challenge, you know, the ideas of, of male and female. It should challenge the ideas of race. It should challenge all of these concepts because at the end of the day, um, what happens to a human when they come face to face with an intelligence that isn't human, but is as intelligent, if not more intelligent, Mm -hmm. right? Um, how does that alter or, or challenge, um, our notions of ourselves? So that's kind of what the book dives into. Um, and it does so with, with a, a, um, I don't want to say a lot of philosophy. I tried to keep it as simple as possible, Mm -hmm. um, because I wanted to make it approachable. Um, I, I think sometimes it gets a little too wordy, but um, that's kind of the point. Um, we, the UFO people, are a very countercultural movement, um, but in our counterculturalness, we sort of get lost, and we we end up in this ghostly realm, this in between, this gap world. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but yeah, between sort of reality and mythology. Right, right, and we, you know, we sort of float in and out of each. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes with more ease than a lot of people may think, you know, like you said, I, I spend my nights looking into this stuff and interviewing a witness who said, you know, a craft came down and they, they saw a being piloting this. And then, and then, you know, the next day I have to go to my nine to five or whatever job. And like you said, make money to pay the bills and the things are in such a juxtaposition that I I do feel that way. I feel like... I'm like floating above myself sometimes watching this weird play play out. Um, but it's not like having that impact that it should. Someone tells me that they were abducted by aliens. Like that should change the paradigm right there uh, for the person having yeah. the experience and the person hearing it and investigating it. Yet, like you say, like life goes on these sort of, cultural and society driven norms we've created ourselves they they sort of stop that you know they they sort of put a stamp down on these unbelievable uh in many ways things that we we seem to come across and what what i really enjoyed is that you you stress the importance of the ufo witness which you know is like my thing you know that's all that's what i witnesses are my thing i love them and many mm-hmm. researchers they ignore that entire aspect of UFO studies they go right for the science and I do not blame them for that but in your book what sort of importance do you put on the witness before we even get to the the researchers and the outsiders as it were yeah well you know the I feature I feature you know one witness mainly in my book so right. the, the, the 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 beginning of my book is really my journey in into the UFO subculture and then sort of following this one particular witness kind of through various, I don't want to say sort of tales, but tales might be a good word. Um, and, and, and her experiences. Um, and you know, I want to stipulate early on that I have no evidence, um, no physical or tangible evidence that tells me that what she experienced was real or not. Like, I just don't know. And I clearly indicate this in the book. Um, but 
ultimately that is the UFO phenomenon in general, right? There is no real tangible evidence that proves or disproves the source of the UFO phenomenon. I think there's enough tangible evidence out there to prove that there is a UFO phenomenon. There's enough tangible evidence out there to prove that something weird is happening, something anomalous. But that's about it. I don't think there's any sort of tangible evidence anyone's really seen that would suggest that, you know, this is what the UFO phenomenon is caused by or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, I want to be clear that I'm not going to present any evidence of a UFO case that's going to really be you know, a smoking gun, let's say, in this particular case in regards to a witness. But at the end of the day, witnesses and experiencers are really our only connection to the phenomenon. They're, they're the only ones who have dealt with it directly, right? So, so they've, they've been made ghosts, right? Um, I, I have willingly chosen to walk into this world um, and become a ghost as a result, right? I, I, fully admit to like i said driving i I don't my kid doesn't go to dance class she goes to theater class um drama class she's three it's it's not really theater class i have to admit listen like here's a quick (laughs) aside like it's a bunch of little kids who run around a room and it's the funniest thing in the world and they pretend and it's like super cute but they're toddlers um so i call it theater (laughs) broadway isn't much different my man yeah i work that nine to five (laughs) yeah and i use the term theater like i'm doing air quotes with my fingers right Mm -hmm. now um but, you know, like I live in that world where I, I drive my kid to, to theater class and, and I live that life. You know, I drink my coffee. Um, but then, like you say, I come home and I deal with UFOs. Um, so I've chosen to live this life willingly, whether it's a mistake or not. I don't know yet. But um, experiencers and witnesses are the ones who, who don't have the choice. So I have chosen to go into this ghostly realm and live in it where the experiencer is forced to by the phenomenon Assuming their, like, assuming assuming their experience was caused by the phenomenon, right? Like, there's going to be individuals who who hoax and lie and experience mental breakdowns and illusion and, and stuff like that and delusion and stuff like that. So, you know, not every single UFO experiencer or or, or abductee or contactee is. 100% legitimate mm-hmm. by numbers alone. In no community of people is anyone sort of. 100% right all the time in, in any endeavor, right? So, you know, you know, you're always going to have a doctor who's insane, for example. Um, so in, in, in the UFO community, you're gonna have a similar situation. But like I said, they, they are p- placed into this ghostly realm by the phenomenon. Um, and, and for some reason, they're the ones, right? They're the ones who, who, who fall into this gap, whether it's on purpose, or whether it was by accident, or, or something in between, um, they were selected in some way. Um, and I think the witness and the experiencer are, are essential to UFO studies. I think we need to sort of handle that all with, with kid gloves sometimes. Um, because like I said, I don't know if every single experiencer out there is legitimately an experiencer of something anomalous. Um, but um, really, they're, they're, they're the bread and butter. You need them. Because without the witnesses and without the experiences, experiencers, there are no UFOs. Yeah. And there are no alien abductions and there are no interdimensional beings or whatever you want to believe. Yep. Takes two to tango for sure. And I mean, okay. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. So we have, yeah, we have the, the experiencer or the witness. We have the ones researching it, like you and I. And then we have this third, uh, you know, that make up the trio of the subculture that you've sort of coined here. And that's the general public. So 
I, I'd love to sort of tackle that with you next, man. We, okay, so without the experiencers, yes, we would have nothing to study. But then we have the general public who don't want to be ghosts, who don't want to dip their toes into a lot of this. So um, would you say that's sort of like the third and final, um, you know, benchmark to the, the subculture? You know, I want to be cautious, right? Because I think I think there's a huge segment of the general public that is interested okay. in in the UFO phenomenon. They just don't talk about it. Right. Um, they they and that could be for a lot of reasons. Um, or they're they're interested to a point, um, but they have other priorities, right? Other interests. Um, I, I think where we bump into the biggest issue with the general public. Is, is the general public that typically holds the reins over the media or holds the reins over, you know, scientific grant funding or any academic grant funding, the general public that can, can really be of use to getting more people looking at the UFO question are too conservative, not politically, but too conservative, maybe economically or too conservative in their own viewpoints to um pursue it right so when you look at the main reason for example like when you look at science let's take scientists for example the vast majority of scientists i have little doubt are incredibly interested by anomalous phenomena whether it's ufos or or ghost sightings or cryptozoology or um uh, parapsychology or anything i'm sure tons of scientists are fascinated by the subject but they don't talk about it publicly because the men and women above them who hold the purse strings um, are not, right? Um, And when you look at scientists who get to the point where they're the ones who handle grant money or handle academic funding or project money, they're pretty conservative, right? Like to to become someone who chooses to no longer do research but fund research – you're not really a risk taker. You're the one who 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 holds the cash to 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 give to the risk takers. So if you already have a, a group of people who are relatively conservative holding all the money, yet you have a whole bunch of scientists who are interested and risk takers, but know that if they go to those conservative people and say, "Hey, I want to study weird stuff." you know that those those conservative people are going to say no right they're going to say no listen this is not what science is about no this is not what our university is about no this would look bad in the media blah 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 so no we're not going to give you funding and then next time you come looking for funding you know that person's like oh wait aren't you the guy who is interested in ufos or aren't you that scientist you know last time i spoke to you you were really fascinated by bigfoot um listen lady i'm not going to give you money you know like i think that this happens and I think that this is common across sort of most academics and most people. I think people are generally interested in UFOs. I mean, obviously, people are interested in UFOs and, and ghosts and all that. You look at any media website, New York Times to The Atlantic to um, Huffington Post, whatever, you look at what articles get the most clicks. It's all paranormal related yeah. all the time because people are inherently fascinated. But those, I think, in, in positions of power, um, because they're not interested because again, they're generally conservative. And again, I don't mean politically conservative, like not right wing conservative. I mean, just conservative in, in general, like economically or whatever. Um, they're not going to pursue those things openly and seriously. 
Yeah. So I think that, I don't know, I, the general public is kind of this weird cat. They're pretty ghostly themselves, maybe, you know, like they're, they're interested, but they can't talk about it much like a ghost, you know, they're interested in haunting, but they don't, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, it's a good point too, man. You look at like any entrepreneurs who have helped fund UFO stuff and they're pretty ghostly. If you think about yeah. it, their names aren't out there until they're either leaked or you know, yeah. eventually they come forward many, many years later and say, oh, yeah, I funded that, uh, you know, that skinwalker thing or back. Well, in the exactly. Day. <laughs> right. Like I, I was just thinking about like, you know, Adamantium Limited or whatever they are, Adamantium LLC that owns Skinwalker Ranch, right? Yeah. This shadowy owner who nobody knows who it is who owns Skinwalker Ranch. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, if you watch Jeremy Corbell's film, the guy openly says, listen, I have a lot of businesses that would suffer if people knew, right? Mm -hmm. Because again, the people who bankroll him, the people who buy shares, the people who, who invest in him, investors are generally not risk takers, right? Investors are, are very careful with money um, because they've grown up to be careful with money. There's very few exceptions, right? Of, of business people who take bold risks. Um, right. Oftentimes they end up being billionaires, but you know, maybe they got lucky. I don't know. Okay. So let's put the microscope back on sort of the UFO I guess, research and experiencer uh, communities. We have these issues that arise in any community or any, you know, you know, faction or what have you. And one you pointed out in the book that, uh, that a lot of people either choose to ignore or flat out deny is gender politics when it comes to ufology. And I found it really, really great that you covered this in depth in the book. So what made you want to tackle this and what'd you learn about gender within the UFO community? This, this, I think of, of all of the chapters in the book, this one is going to be the most, um, like, um, this one's gonna be the most political. Like I think people, if, yeah, listen, people, <laughs> people within the UFO community, hopefully will review my book. And this is the chapter that they're going to say that like they hate because they're going to say that like I'm wrong. Right. <laughs> um, because I think, I think the people again, who, ref who review typically the people who review UFO books, um, are generally pretty conservative UFO researchers. Extremely. Um, um so, you know, I'm going to be, I, I'm going to be lambasted a little bit for this one. So hopefully other as aspects of the book make them happy enough to the point where they kind of overlook this and be like, oh, it's just benign being you know, a liberal. <laughs> um, I was, um, I was sitting in a coffee shop um, and Mike DeMonte, who runs the punk rock and UFOs blog, posted an interview with Erica Lukes, um, who hosts UFO Classified, right? The, her radio show or mm -hmm. Um, her, I guess, a podcast, radio show, internet radio show, um, and 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 in the interview, she talks about um, sort of the gender politics of UFOs, and that it's uh, the community itself is, or sorry, the the research community, um, and predominantly the community of individuals who, let's say, make up sort of the expert level. So not the sort of individuals like myself who are just sort of low level UFO writers and researchers. Um, but the UFO gurus, let's say mm -hmm. the vast majority of, of them are men. The vast majority of the individuals who own UFO related media sites, conferences, all that stuff are, are predominantly male. 
Um, so she had this interview and she talked about sort of how she was bullied by, you know, various people in various organizations related to UFOs. Um, and I read this article and, and, or this, yeah, this post that Mike wrote and I was like, Oh, interesting. You know, this is quite fascinating because again, I'm a culture studies guy and, and, you know, a good chunk of culture studies is, is, is gender and talking about gender and feminism. And so I, I contacted Luke's and I said, you know, Hey Erica, how's it going? You know, I have a couple questions and, and she basically gave me her story. Um, and ultimately we decided after kind of going through it that, um, we were, we were not going to put it in the book. Um, and there was various reasons for this, but she gave me the names of a whole bunch of other women in the UFO community and the paranormal community who've contacted her, contacted her rather as a result of, of this, of this post and her, her sort of move to, to discuss gender within, within this community. Mm -hmm. Um, so I spoke with them and, and they were willing to, to give me their stories. And, and, and a lot of them went into the book, not all of them. Um, because it's just often, there's just, you just, you know, as a writer, you get, you know, 300 people talking to you, but you have room for, you know, 6,000 words. So yeah, yeah, you have to really pare it down, um, to, to what, you know, one fits with the book, but also just kind of, you know, what, I don't know how to, how to explain it. What kind of jives well with the yeah. overall theme you're trying to, to what sort to, of message you're trying to exactly. Say, yeah. Right? And I mean, I could have, like I said, used, used anyone. Um, but these, these sort of the, the three ladies, um, in, in the book, the three women, women in the book, um, are, uh, Sue Demeter St. Clair, who wrote a chapter for Robbie Graham's reframing the debate, UFOs reframing the debate. Um, Alison Jornlin, who's a paranormal investigator out of, oh man, Milwaukee. Yep. Um, and uh, Cheryl Costa, who wrote um, that super huge book, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, what like the UFO desk ma- reference, reference manual you or could whatever. Kill it is, right? someone with that. Book. Yeah, it's yeah. like a phone book. Um, <laughs> if you threw it at someone, it would yeah, it'd take their head off. Um, and and it was a very interesting process to to interview these women. And and obviously the irony is that I'm a man, right? Talking about women's issues in ufology or gender issues in ufology. Like I, I totally get the irony there, mm-hmm. um, but I, I, I approached the chapter more from their perspective. So I, it was their stories that really are the chapter. I just kind of filled in the punctuation, but I think, you know, the UFO community is like any other community that's sort of predominantly male dominated, yeah. um, males, um, like UFO researchers who who stand up on a stage and talk about UFOs are predominantly male. The ones who assert sort of th- this is my theory of UFOs or this is my evidence and this is my investigation or whatever. I think that's pretty much that is and 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 currently is a, a male game. I, I would say a high percentage of of UFO researchers who are public in their research and and write books and appear on television shows and appear at conferences are male. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you have more women involved in telling their own stories, right? You have a lot more women who, who talk about contact and abduction. You have a lot more women who talk about their personal experience with the paranormal. Um, and they don't really do things like here is UFO research, you know, this is my theory, here you go. Rather, they kind of present it more in the sense of these are the experiences I've had and I'm going to talk about them. Right. 
Um, and, and this was the, I, I referenced a lot from a book written by Brenda Densler, who is a, a religious studies PhD. She wrote a book called Lure of the Lure, Lure, Lure of the Edge. Um, and that book was written, I think, in 2001 or 2002 or something. Um, but she went to a bunch of UFO conferences and, and did um, studies. Like she ran statistical studies and it was something to the effect of 80% of all UFO experts. The other 20% were either male and not white or women. Um, And then it's something like 40% of all people who spoke about being abducted were women, were women Hmm. Uh, or no, sorry, 60% of, of, of abductees that spoke publicly about their, about their abductions were women. And then the other 40% were male. And, and, and you can read her book. Like I'm, I'm probably butchering her stats, but it was quite astronomical. Like how many males there were in relation to females. Now, obviously those numbers have changed, right? The, it's been a long time since 2001, right? Like, you know, a whole generation has sort of gone by. But, um, I think predominantly when you look at posters for conferences and when you look at books and when you look at media you know who's being featured on ancient aliens and who's being featured um on various ufo themed shows it it is predominantly a male story um and again i don't want to spoil too much from the book because i I obviously want people to buy it but um you know there's there's one particular moment um where susan demeter st Clair, who wrote the chapter the only female in the entire UFOs reframing the debate book, actually, which is interesting to note, there's only one female writer in that whole book. Mm-hmm. She expresses it pretty plainly when, when um, someone else who, who was involved in that project, um, one of the other writers of, of, of an essay for that book project, um, told her sort of <laughs> that um, her chapter was excellent and that she was, um, what was the expression? That, that she did... Oh God, I'm going to, she, she worded it so beautifully in, in my book, mm-hmm. um, that she was a, um, like a great example of her gender or something to that effect, right? Like totally played down this, this, this notion of equality and kind of said, Oh, you know, you're a woman. Congratulations. You wrote a book chapter, you know, like it was right. so expensive. And the person I'm sure like the, 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 the gentleman who stated this, probably didn't mean anything harmful right but the very act of how they said it was harmful right it just shows the stereotypes that exist and it shows the discrimination that exists within the ufo community that she was sort of this shining example of her gender within the paranormal research community and, and like there's tons of stories like that my book is chock full of, of stories from from various women who who have come forward and sort of said yeah you know i was uh talking with this guy he wanted me to do a an interview for a tv show for his paranormal group and um you know then he sent me a dick pic um you know and you're just like you know like why does this you know like how does this happen right i uh, i laugh because i'm uncomfortable dude it, it's just it's so true i mean what the what the female researchers deal with in this community and probably every community um aside from ufology quote unquote is you know they're scrutinized a thousand times more than any male up on that stage so no wonder they're they're hesitant to get up there and present their research a lot of them are doing it in the shadows you know or um you know through the internet so that they aren't out in public and don't get this get the stuff that you mentioned, you know, oh, you did so good for a a woman writer. Good job. Um, it, it's it, I like you said, 
you and I, we can talk about gender politics all we want, but it's good to see that you you gave the voices to the women in the book to express it themselves. I think that's more important than anything the two of us yeah. could ever say. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I didn't want to take control too much. You know, this was a chapter that I, I personally, I still feel uncomfortable about only because I am a man who's writing about women. The, the, the problem I think is that um, there hasn't really been a lot of work published by women in the paranormal community for the paranormal that for the paranormal community um, in regards to the gender politics within the paranormal community, right? Like there, this really hasn't been done, and I think it needs to be. And I clearly state that in my book. I sort of say like this is not this is not my fight. I'll 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 try and and give voice because I have. I have a soapbox, right? Mm -hmm. So I will let other people use my soapbox kind of thing. Like, please, like this book needs to be written sort of, uh, you know, um, female paranormal researchers who have to deal with, with issues of gender, um, in their work, I I think is a book that needs to be written, but it's not going to be written by me because I'm not the person to do it. Um, Alison Jornlin, who is featured heavily in the chapter, um, you know, kind of put it best, you know, men, when they get up on stage, or when they show up on TV, or when they do YouTube videos, or whatever, don't necessarily have to worry about the clothes they wear, because other men aren't going to look at them and judge them by their outfits, or judge them by their hair, or whatever, you know, Um, I read a funny article where, where I think was written by, I can't remember who actually, I'm not going to say names, because I don't want to, yeah, I I don't know who wrote it, but they were talking about um, um, Dr. David Jacobs, who was the he's the abduction research guy who talks about how there's a alien human hybrid program and it's all about invading the planet mm-hmm. right um he wrote a bunch of books anyway you know he got up on stage and you know he was dressed sort of like a old university professor quite sort of frazzled looking and you know his hair was all over place like he's from um back to the future <laughs> you know and and um that's kind of what he looks like and and people you know they talked about not really his outfit or what he looked like. It was sort of mentioned he looked like a university professor, period. These are his ideas, period. Um, but if a woman stood up on stage dressed like that or like, you know, like looking like he did, right, it would be, wow, she looks totally like not put together. Like there would be se- severe judgment upon the appearance, right? And I think we do this in all walks of life. This isn't something that's just localized to the UFO community, but you often see in the media when, you know, uh, especially during the last election, when Hillary Clinton went on stage and she looked a little tired, people pointed it out, right? People said, oh, Hillary looks tired and, and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, Donald Trump stands up on stage and it's nothing about how tired he looks or how terrible his hair is. You know, those become internet memes of the political left. But, um, it's not really news coverage, but you know, if, if Hillary Clinton is wearing the wrong color shoes for her outfit, it's pointed out. Um, and this is, listen, like I, this is not, this is, this is old hat feminism I'm spewing here. Um, I, this is, you know, not a new, new concept, but I don't think anyone in the UFO community has really written about it. So I don't know, I guess it's time. Yeah. I guess I decided to, I don't know. I, I can't justify it. I just did Well, it. you know, man, it, it's, again, it's a big part of the subculture, and it needs to be pointed out. And um, Yeah, and I think know. that's true. It yeah. is a book about this. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. 
Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Subculture. And I mean, well, since you talked about Jacobs and the abduction phenomenon, I would love to tackle that with you. Something which I covered in detail in my own research and book, uh, but a part of me wishes I remained as critical as you did about the abduction phenomenon as a whole. And that really came across with this story of Roy in your book. Would you mind maybe running us through a little bit of this? I know it's a big one, but it, this yeah. story really hit me and brought me back into you know what I felt when I was covering the abduction phenomenon in my own work. So yeah, can you yeah. tell us a little about Roy? Sure. Yeah. Um, before I do, I mean, ultimately, you know, I, I don't know if people are abducted by aliens or not. I don't know. All I have is what people tell me. Right. So, you know, I've heard lots of people tell me their stories on how they were abducted by aliens. And some of them, you know, are relatively stable, rational people. They're, you know, what we would say are um, like, they're, they're just people like you and I, and they have this amazing experience, mm-hmm. frightening experience. So, so do people get abducted by aliens? You know, I'm going to sit on the, I don't know fence because I don't know. I, I'm not going to say they do. I'm not going to say they don't. Um, so I'll leave it at that. In regards to Roy, however, Roy came to me well before I was into UFOs and, um, he was, in, he was introduced to me through sort of another UFO researcher. I knew, um, a friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, sort of told me his story. And and initially, I was unsure what to think. And as, as I sort of spoke to Roy more, you know, he had a lot of issues in his life that, to me, indicated that maybe Roy was not having an abduction experience, but maybe the abduction experience was, um, I don't want to say a delusion, but a, a sort of a, a way to fill in some of the hurt that he felt as a result of, of events that happened in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, Roy is obviously not his real name, only because I lost touch with Roy years ago, um, and I haven't been able to get a hold of him. Uh, his email no longer is active. His phone number is disconnected. So, you know, ultimately, I, I, I wasn't able to get his permission to use his name in the book. Okay. So I just changed it to Roy, which, which fit nicely. Um, and Roy was having sort of regular abduction experiences where at night in bed, sort of these entities would, would render him unconscious and um, he would sort of feel an electric shock and then, you know, that's it. And then he would wake up the next morning and, you know, he would have maybe sort of, you know, at one point he had an injury on his head, but, but that was it. 
Um, it, you know, my, my opinion is he just hit his head on his headboard during a dream or something like that. He just bumped his head. Right. Um, so there was no evidence really to present that, that he had, you know, a legitimate abduction experience. He was also undergoing sort of severe stress in his life. His wife and son recently left him. He recently sort of suffered an accident and, and, and injured himself. So he was not, he wasn't able to work anymore. Um, and I think his life was spiraling sort of out of control. I mean, he had spent his entire life, um, raising, you know, a son and, um, having, a, being married and, and, and building a, a home for himself and, and, uh, having a relatively stable job. Um, and that all kind of fell away very quickly. And, and it never really was expressed to me why his wife or son left. It was never really expressed to me sort of, sort of what occurred personally to Roy. Um, but he came to me looking for answers and looking for help, um, to make it stop and make it go away. And it sort of, you know, broke my heart, right? Um, Roy is one of those cases that I wish it, you know, I wish I knew now what I didn't know then, you know, I was a lot younger. I was not experienced. I had not been like a field investigator for MUFON and I hadn't talked to dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of UFO witnesses and individuals. And, you know, I think I would have approached the whole situation a little differently, but Roy was looking for answers from a ufologist. Um, and I have to be honest, ufologists should not be doling out any answers whatsoever because we're not qualified to because there's no qualifications. Uh, and, and I think Roy had um, some sort of um, mental health breakdown. Um, and I think the abductions for him filled in a gap of, of something rather than nothing. Um, he had lost everything. And um, I think the aliens for him were something that he could latch onto something that he could anchor his life to. And so and sad, man. I'm like almost it, in tears. Yeah, I'm not, it, I'm not it, kidding. It is heartbreaking because um, he he went away and he found some hypnotherapist who said they were going to regress him and we're going to charge him a fortune for it. Um, and this this hypnotherapist, like I have to be honest, like many hypnotherapists who involve themselves in the UFO community. I'm not going to say all hypnotherapy. But I think in I think certain people who claim to be hypnotherapists and and who work specifically within the UFO community on purpose know that they can prey upon an easy target. Um, and I think Roy was an easy target because he wanted it to stop, but I'm not sure if he really did. Right. Um, and and I think when you deal with people who who engage in psychological or um, or psychiatric sort of care. One, if if they're not really psychiatrists or, or psychologists proper, like if they don't actually have actual credentials from an actual university, um, I, I think that that they end up doing work within our community, knowing that there's a lot of individuals within our community who 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 have psychological concerns that that need real professional help, mm-hmm. um, and they act as sort of parasites within our community to 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 extract people's hard-earned money um, and they play upon mental health issues. Um, so I think, I, I think had I known all of this back then, I would have sort of handled it all differently. And I don't know where Roy is now. I, I don't have any clue what he's up to. But um, yeah, it's, it's one of those cases where you have an abduction victim who, in my opinion, and again, it's my opinion, I'm not a psychologist. Um, I'm not a psychiatrist. So I could be totally wrong here. Maybe all of his experiences were 100% alien abductions. Mm-hmm. I don't know. 
but in my opinion, my gut feeling um, is that there was there was uh, an issue, a mental health issue. Yeah, uh, and and it breaks my heart. You know what I mean? Like it's still one of those. It's it's he's he's sort of a ghost in my head, um, and he is um, he's my red flag, right? Like if I ever meet people like him. I, I automatically think of, of him and I'm like, this is, this is not the route we need to go and, and you need to do this. And I'm, and I'm not going to really work with you because um, I don't know if, if I'm your best answer, you know? So it's, it's, it's interesting. That being said, you know, with all that being said, I have spoken to a lot of individuals who have, who have claimed contact and abduction who are not like Roy, who are quite stable um, who have stable support systems at home, loving, caring families who who are are in are not sort of falling away, but remain kind of foundations for them. Um, so you know it's tough, right? You know, yeah. does that you know? So what do I do with that? You know, what do I do with uh, all the individuals in in the in the UFO research I've done who are very stable and who have stable jobs have stable families have you know loving husbands and wives and children um and and extended families you know like they have dinner with the family every sunday and everyone knows about what happened to uncle jim or aunt jenny um and everyone's fine with it and they love them anyway and and it's not a psychological issue and it's not a mental health issue it's like something that they believe that they experienced um, you know, wh- what am I to say that that's not happening? I honestly don't know. I can be critical and I can, re- you know, I can remain, um, objective or try to remain objective, but, um, that's the problem with the UFO phenomenon, right? And the paranormal in general, um, you don't know what's what, mm-hmm. um, and anyone who says they know, um, is a liar or, tr- or trying to sell you something, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What is your tagline for your, uh, cafe obscura again? That always comes to mind. Oh, it's the um, keep searching for answers and never trust those who say they have them. Perfect. I love that. That's yeah. a good way to uh, wrap the bow on the abduction phenomenon. Dude, I I I struggle every day. I covered so many in my past research and book, mm-hmm. and I've come no closer to an answer. But I have run into the same dilemma as you is, you know, you have someone like Roy, and I've met many a Roy who I, in my younger days and naive days of research, wish I had been more careful with how I approach those things. You know, you start second guessing everything you said to them. Like, did I enable this delusion or fantasy or gap in their life? Or, you know, did I help them in some way? And sometimes just getting it out there is enough for the people. Um, And then it's not your job or responsibility to find answers for them. Just for them to get it out can be enough. But I mean, you know, that. I don't have to tell you that. But you but then, like you said, you meet those people, those down to earth husband or wife or teacher or professor or law enforcement officer who say the same damn thing that they were abducted by aliens. And you're just like, what? the hell like i've you've got such a wide swath such a big yeah. spectrum of individuals <clears throat> claiming these things so I, yeah i, I would say nowhere to begin yeah it's really tough i think i think my my initial like whenever i i engage with people who who claim contact or abduction or any ufo witness for that matter or any witness of the paranormal i think when they when they come to me and they say you know this is what I saw, and they describe it. And then the next words out of their mouths are, I have no idea what the hell is going on. 
automatically that for me raises like, okay, you've passed my first test in right. a sense, right? Like my litmus test is you, you probably should sit there and say, you have no clue what's, what you, what, what's going on. Right. Um, when, when people come to me and say, you know, I experienced this and I know 100% that it's aliens from this planet or it's interdimensional beings from this, or it's, it's, um, these beings from this species, from this non-human organization, it's the blue avians from the intergalactic federation, or it's the Pleiadians. And like when, when people start coming to me and saying that, then they've sort of failed the first test in a sense, right? Like they, they are making claims of knowledge that they may not. Now, maybe the aliens told them that maybe the aliens said, listen, I am a blue avian from the intergalactic federation, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Careful, but, you know, man. You might get a copyright infringement if you keep saying blue avian. I can't say, can I see, uh, can I say from the secret space program? Secret oh, space ooh, program. Ooh, careful. That's gonna secret space program. Now. Secret space program. Secret space program. You are costing me a fortune, dude. Listen, you can just send your legal bills to me. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> He can't listen. He can't sue you because he'd have to prove that they exist. Um, so, <laughs> in a court of law, which he can't. Um, so, you're all right. Don't worry about it. There's Moving an actually going to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> where were we? Um, yeah, the litmus test, right? Like, I mean, I think generally people who have had legitimate contact with the phenomenon, let's just say, let's just call it the phenomenon, mm-hmm. they will often approach the whole situation with, I have no clue what's going on. Um, and that's why in my book, I went sort of with Amy, who was a UFO witness, who I, I talk about a lot in the first sort of section of my book, um, because she she contacted me, um, and it was like, something's happening, I don't know what it is, I just need someone to talk to. Um, and that was it. Like, it wasn't, she wasn't looking for answers, she wasn't looking for, is it aliens, is it this? Like, it, and to this day, it's still like, I don't know what's happening, and it's weird, and I, I kind of want it to stop. Um, you know, like, it's, it's that kind of odd you know, like it's sort of compelling to her, but it's also horribly frightening, right? right? It's like a moth to a flame sometimes, right? Like, you know, mm. like you, 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 you're interested because they're there, but then you're, you're like, I wish they would kind of go away too, yeah. um, because it's disrupting my life. Um, but Amy in my book has always kind of been that way. It's always been, I'm not sure what to do and I don't know what's happening. And, and she's, she's never made a claim as to what, it is right. Mm-hmm. All she knows is it's not normal. So, so that's my, that's why I think I featured her as my experiencer slash UFO witness for most yeah. of the, even though I don't have any evidence to support her case. But you know, I think, and, and this comes up in actually a future YouTube video, Ryan, that is going to come out next week mm-hmm. um, to, to um, your book as well. Is just you. And I mentioned you in, in, in my next YouTube video, but um, on my YouTube channel, which I'll plug later, you know, you and I are sort of, anthropologists of a sort right like we're storytellers we log stories um we collect people's stories right and we and we tell them for them and because we get a soapbox right somebody has decided to give you and me a soapbox to stand on um so we're going to do what we do best which is tell stories right um because that's all we can do and i think that's all the phenomenon really lets us do i think when we get too close to evidence with the phenomenon like tangible evidence the phenomenon changes Mm. um shifts right it, it it doesn't like when we when we gather too much evidence on it which is why ufos used to land and leave trace evidence landing marks and they don't anymore um you know <laughs> like it's 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 it, it adapts to us i think in a way so we're anthropologists of of something that um shouldn't exist but does so as if 
the UFO community wasn't messy enough. Now we learn that there are people hired to disinform and disorient all of us, researchers, experiencers, everyone in between. Would you mind touching on the experiences and your interactions with one of the most hated men in ufology, Richard Doty? What role did he play in UFO history and in your book? Well, okay, so if you have not heard of Richard Doty, then you should go and like Google Richard Google Richard Doty. Yeah. But um <clears throat> it's yeah, Richard Doty is such an interesting fellow. Um because when I first started talking to him and we spoke like for months on and off, um, you know, it would be sort of cute Facebook messages back and forth and emails, then we'd spoke on the phone and like he's a really nice guy, and the vast majority of our conversations focused really on sort of three things. Um, one, our love of like Eastern European food. Um, <laughs> like he and I share a common like penchant for like rich Ukrainian, German, Russian, Polish, like kill your heart food. Um, <laughs> so a lot of our conversations circled around that. Um, and then the second thing we talked about a lot were, um, was like beer and we had a lot of beer conversations and he is, he's really a fan of like dark Canadian and, and, and European beers, like, like, like stouts and, and, and dark ales and, and that kind of thing. Um, and then the third thing we talked about a lot were like our, the children in our lives. So he's a grandfather. So he has sort of grandchildren who, um, you know, he worships the ground they walk on. Um, and I, you know, as I was talking to him, I was recently sort of a, a new father to my second, my second child, my son. Um, so, you know, I, we were, I was kind of uh, growing up in this, in this environment of being the father of now my second kid and not getting any sleep and just complaining about that, but also enjoying the fact that I had this little baby all the time that, you know, as I'm talking to him on the phone, there's this like little, little guy sleeping in my arms. So we often had conversations about like, our the babies in our lives right um so it's very weird to have conversations with richard doty about these three things i mean because everything about richard doty is richard doty the disinformation agent the spook the the man who's responsible for the mental breakdown of paul benowitz Mm -hmm. um the guy who basically you know was an avery aviary member in the 1980s and and allegedly the falcon in in the avery like you know there's this whole ufo mythology around him but he's like totally the most normal guy now with all that being said um richard doty is still richard doty and you're not always sure when he like okay so whenever we spoke about food beer and children you could easily tell he was being 100% genuine, right? He is a family man, first and foremost. And then you start talking about UFOs, and then all of a sudden things change, right? Like suddenly you're not talking to Richard Doty, the guy who you just talked to about food and beer and kids. You're now talking to Richard Doty, who was an intelligence officer. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And you're not sure kind of where you stand. So in one breath, you know, you're having these great sort of back and forth discourse over pierogies and then you're, then you suddenly kind of mention a UFO thing. And then all of a sudden it's like the tone changes, right? I don't, you know, I, I, I leave Richard Doty in this weird world of like one, I don't know, but I think that, that he is very guarded about his UFO 
his connection to the UFO community. Um, okay. He doesn't he doesn't like the UFO community whatsoever. Um, he 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 does not think he's a member of it. Um, and, and more importantly, when he talks about UFOs, you don't know if he's telling you a story or a lie or the truth. Um, and there were moments where I would ask him a question. And then he would he would give me sort of his response, and then I would basically give him evidence that counters his response, and then he wouldn't talk to me for several days. Really, like he would become quite upset about it, right? Or at least I don't know. Maybe this is sort of how he plays the game. I don't know, but you know, it, there were moments where he said, "Don't ever ask me about that again. I'm not talking about that. We're done, right?" And then I sort of, you know. We'd be kind of hanging out, and then I'd send him a cute picture of my kid, and then we'd have a conversation again. Um, so it was a long, I think it was like four or five months of, of on and off conversations, and you know, a lot of, of accusations of me not knowing the whole story and, and, and all this, and, and, and that's fine. I mean, I told him flat out, listen, I said, I'm not a UFO researcher, really. I'm like a cultural studies guy. So I'm not really writing a book about UFOs, and he sort of at times would be like, well, you should do your research on UFOs, and he would kind of read me the riot act because, you know, I'm asking questions that are stupid, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm writing a book that's not necessarily for people who are sort of super versed in UFOs either. So, you know, I had to kind of get some of that basic information. Um, but overall, I think Richard Doty represents this this perfect example of what the UFO community is. Um, the UFO community is Richard Doty esque. Mm. Um, it's a mix of truth and fiction. It's a mix, and the phenomenon's like that as well. The UFO discourse is this, right? Like the entire UFO narrative, the UFO discourse is a mix of fact and fiction, very similar to Doty. Doty himself is a mix of fact and fiction. Nobody knows what the reality is and what the mythology is. Nobody knows what's real and what isn't when they speak to Doty about UFOs, because that's that's what's been created about him and for him and maybe by him. Um, and we, we are, like, in a sense, Richard Doty, right? We don't know what aspects of the UFO narrative and the UFO discourse are real and what aren't. Um, we don't know what is truth and what is misinformation or disinformation, right? When when UFO experts and pundits and UFO gurus stand up there and tell us the truth, quote-unquote, it's their version of the truth. And we don't know if their version is misinformed, purposefully disinformed, or if they're just making shit up, or they're being real and legitimate, right? Like, we don't know, um, which is which is what Richard Doty is, right? We don't know where he stands, um, because there's been so much storytelling, so much mythologizing, um, and so much truth kind of all interweaved together. Um, so I kind of paint Richard Doty at the end of it all as a sort of mirror of the UFO community. Um, we don't like Richard Doty because we see ourselves in Richard Doty. Give a face to it, and then we don't have to blame ourselves for um, almost mythologizing or creating a myth. You know, it's but, fascinating. Uh, Agreed. And I think we have created a myth. I mean, like, ultimately, we have. Um, because not every aspect of the UFO discourse and the UFO narrative is true. There are, I'm sure, countless cases that we deem to be, like, great UFO cases that are, like, total nonsense and bullshit. Yep. Um, and, and, like, it's just, they've just kind of become lionized and, and they've become so legendary that um, they've become these linchpin UFO cases that are at times most likely hoaxes or delusion or just mistake. Um, but we've, we've made, we've wanted them to be real that they've become real. Our desire for them to become authentic has made them. So, 
Um, we've made meaning where there isn't any. But isn't that reality? Like, isn't that really how we function? Like, don't we make meaning all the time? Like, you know, like really, is there such thing as masculine and feminine? No, we've just made that up just to make ourselves feel better. I don't know. Same with race. Uh, well, well, this is well, a exactly. whole other conversation uh, we could have. I wholeheartedly <laughs> agree. The fact that the fact that we still have conversations as, in the 21st century concerning race is ridiculous. There is there are there's no such thing as race. There's one like we the Homo sapiens are it right. Yeah. Like skin color does not indicate race right that's 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 nonsense but for some reason we still have this conversation for some reason you know and right now i'm currently working a broadway production of to kill a mockingbird so this is very prevalent for me right now so you know yes we could tackle that issue in great depth but but we only have so much time and i really want to focus not the place (laughs) not the place maybe maybe in another somewhere in the whiskey (laughs) Oh, oh yes get me a good you know i'm that that's a great idea. We should do another somewhere in the whiskey. Yes, we will very soon. Yeah. So one of the biggest dilemmas, you know, we as UFO researchers often face is when we're asked to present information on UFOs. We're almost always asked if we can prove aliens have have visited our planet, and my answer has and always will be no. There is not one single solid shred of evidence to prove that, and I can, as many can, prove that UFOs exist unidentified aerial phenomena has been well documented for centuries so it's always that that ufo versus alien question and i'm so happy you covered this in the book you tried to pinpoint exactly when this relationship started so what was that experience like trying to sort of go to the source of when the ufo involved the alien yeah man this was um i relied on um sort of expertise here again you know i'm i'm not a ufo researcher like proper you know like uh, people call me that and and i'm not that um i like i said i'm a a culture guy so when people ask me ufo questions like i I feel like i can kind of hold my own in a ufo conversation but i'm not you know like i'm not paul dean or richard dolan or you like i i'm not a ufo expert like people ask me like oh what do you think about this case i'm like I've never heard of that case. And then people are like, what? You haven't? Aren't you a UFO researcher? And it's like, no. Go uh, back into the corner. But I'm just going to go. Yeah, I'm just going to stand here. So I, I kind of turned to the experts. Um, I, I spoke with, with Paul Dean about this. And I was like, hey, you know, you're a UFO historian. And of all sort of the UFO historians out there, you're like probably the, the best. If not, you're one of the best. There's, there's like a good handful of, of great UFO historians. And so I spoke with Paul Dean and he decided that he would contact uh, another UFO historian uh, by the name of Barry Greenwood. So if you're in the UFO community, like, so anyone in your audience who's a member of like the UFO community proper, Barry Greenwood's name comes with sort of significant gravitas. Like this guy has written books and none of that. He's like cataloged like the history of UFOs and it's like damn good research. Um, because like the guy's like a UFO academic, like if there was a UFO academic out there, Barry Greenwood is it. Um, so they decided that to help me with this book, they would sort of write a joint essay, um, which has never been done before a joint Paul Dean, Barry Greenwood essay. So I'm happy (laughs) that that happened. And more importantly, it is like the first time it ever happened is going to be in the book. So if you want to read a joint essay on UFO history by Barry Greenwood and Paul Dean, you have to buy my book. Um, and it's, it's spectacular and it's, and it's, and it's quite, um, approachable, 
um, one thing about Paul Dean and Barry Greenwood is they're so into the, the, the history of UFOs that they could easily produce like a 20,000 page document within days and it would be so robust and so unreadable um, because you'd have to be like them to read it. Um, you know, like there'd be so much nuance you'd get lost. Yeah. Um, so they, I, I made them trim it down to like a meager, like 1200 words or whatever it was. And I remember talking to Paul Dean and, and I told him, you know, like, okay, we got to keep it to like, I, I think I used the expression like, I, yeah, listen, my, my publisher will give you 12. And he thought he like, I meant 12,000 words and he was ecstatic. Right. And I said, no, no, I mean like 1200. And he, like, he flipped his lid, like over the phone, you know, he, whatever it was, it must've been like 2am in Australia when I talked <laughs> and the squares that came out of his mouth, um, were, I was like, well, all right. So anyway, they did it <clears throat> and, and trying to pare down, you know, all UFO history in those two brains to 1200 words, um, was a challenge. Uh, like, yeah. I mean, you know, you know, turning, whatever it is, uh, five loaves and two fishes to feed thousands. That's a miracle, but this was something else. Um, and, uh, you know, really they, they kind of helped me frame up the modern history of UFOs and, and really, really bringing a lot of evidence, especially from newspaper articles and, and government reports that came out, especially in the 1940s and fifties that, I'm sure the vast majority of people in the UFO community had never heard of or have never heard of currently. Like I said, the paper that they wrote or the essay rather that they wrote brings out a lot of information that the vast majority of, of people who currently study UFOs wouldn't know about. But they really hit home this idea that the idea that UFOs came from like flying saucers rather came from Mars and Venus um, and other sort of planets in our solar system, and that they're aliens, that they're extraterrestrial, really began in newspaper reports and government reports from military officers who sort of did like these sort of estimates of the situation, where the you know they kind of said you know these are these are main probably you know extraterrestrial in some way, or they're 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 Martians or whatever, and these are like not public like kind of. Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book ones. These are sort of other smaller reports that that they cite, mm-hmm. um, and and it's unbelievable to read that. Really, it was when we think about the extraterrestrial question in modern ufology, it was pretty much a government slash media push. Right, um, this is what they thought was happening. Um, mm-hmm. Various officers, majors, and colonels, and captains um, in the military, and then sort of the journalists that published, but then. Going further back in my own research, realizing that this actually has sort of a more even older origin and going back to the roots of, of an old sort of pseudo religion called theosophy, which um, was was written and sort of developed by a woman named um, Helena Blavatsky, who was sort of a Russian aristocrat oligarch who kind of started her own religion, I suppose, um, in reaction to Darwinism. Um, and in reaction to evolution, which sort of recently occurred in the late 1800s as an idea, um, this idea that humanity was seeded by sort of these ancient proto races, um, and some of them came from like Venus and other planets. Mm. So we have very early on this, this idea that at least in Western thinking, that there were sort of these ancient races that came to our planet, seeded our planet with various 
proto races, um, and then sort of from that stemmed other races and, and to us. Um, and, and now here we are, but really we are sort of, um, we have this divine spark given to us by these other, I suppose you could use the term aliens. Now she would have never used the term aliens because the term didn't really exist in that context or extraterrestrials didn't exist in that context yet as a term. But, um, this, this notion that people from other planets came to create us, uh, a sort of very early kind of version of ancient astronaut theory. Um, and really when you kind of start looking at this and then you start tracing this lineage, this, how her religion became fodder for the 1920s, 1930s and 1940s sort of comic books, um, and, and amazing stories and, and, and those publications and how they kind of progress the narrative, right? Um, Mm. when you think about all of the alien abduction, flying saucer, aliens, whatever, extraterrestrials, really these stories were told in the 1930s, 1920s and 1930s. Um, and then it, it kind of went further on, right, into the 1940s, and it just sort of evolved along with our, our culture and our, and our society and the current anxieties and desires we had as, as, as a culture in the West. Um, so clearly, you know, aliens in the 1950s were a response to kind of Cold War jitters and, 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 and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but when you kind of look at the extraterrestrial question, it really began in like the late 1800s as a notion. But then it wasn't until kind of the 1940s that you had sort of this official idea from the government and, and from the media that pushed this extraterrestrial narrative. And, and what helped along the lines was, were all of these fictional accounts um, from amazing stories and, and these other publications that kind of promoted, oh, you know, here's here's a comic book story about a flying saucer and aliens, right. um, or H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Um, so you had these uh, these sort of media fictionalizations that pushed the the alien narrative, and I think it kind of took hold. Um, we 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 like the idea of UFOs being caused by physical extraterrestrials like you and I, um, I think for, for one key reason, if they're physical, like you and I, that means they're like you and I, right. Mm. We can, we can engage with them or if need be kill them. Um, and, and they don't, they're not so spooky, right. They're biological. Like we are, they, they function like we do. They think like we do. And this is why a lot of science fiction aliens are just humans, right? Like they're, they're very, they have a lot of human emotions and a lot of human characteristics. Look at Star Trek, for example, right? Like every single alien is basically like a human being. Um, and they're just aspects of, of humans. The Klingons are our violent side and the Romulans are our like sneaky, backstabby side and the Vulcans are a logical side. Like, you know, like you can kind of see humanity and and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think with aliens and extraterrestrials, we, we try to, we, we like that model. And I think the extraterrestrial hypothesis has really taken hold because we want to see ourselves in the other. Once you start dabbling in other aspects of ufology or of UFO discourse, rather, um, when you start leaving the extraterrestrial hypothesis behind, when you start dealing with notions of, of, um, Maybe we're dealing with something more mystical or something more divine or even something even more complicated like, you know, I don't want to use the term interdimensional, but something that, that doesn't come from, from a human standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes much more frightening because it, it's not going to necessarily, in, in our estimation, think like us or function like us or use technology like us. It may not have technology at all. It might just be totally different. Um, so non-human that we don't know how to deal with it or look at it or even see it. 
we become quite anxious and frightened by that. Um, the, the book Hunt for the Skinwalker, when I read it, really kind of hit this home for me. And, 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 and I had read sort of a lot of Keel and a lot of Valet, so I kind of had these ideas in my head already. But when Colm Kelleher presents this notion of, um, you know, this portal opens up and this creature crawls out of it, um, right, this monster, right, or this monster that's perched in a tree and they take shots at it and it just kind of disappears or, or retreats and it doesn't, there's no blood or injury, you know, like we're dealing with something totally non-human. Um, and, and whether it's intelligent or not, we don't know, but because we don't know, that's frightening, right? Um, aliens are not as frightening because we can pin humanity on them where when you deal with creatures that aren't human, um, and do not follow the rules of being human or do not follow the rules of, of anything really that we would understand, um, it's, it, 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 you suddenly like worry about your kids playing in the backyard alone, right? Because like, what if that shit manifests right there in front of them? Um, and then what do you do? Yeah. Which is, I really hope it's aliens because I can reason with an alien, I think. <laughs> you know what I mean? Whereas if I have to deal with some creature crawling out of a hole and it's all distorted and weird and it's made out of shadows, it's like, oh, great. What am I going to do with this? Yeah. Yeah. What what sort of name or identity do you give to something so, you know, forgive the pun, alien that we can't even... And- Man, Ryan, you just say the right thing at the right time because I think that's ex- man. You just like you know you and I should have a TV show together <laughs> because you just said it right. Like like what kind of name or how do you identify it? Right, and I think that's the key point. You and I can identify like as humans, we can sort of identify a biological alien. Right, we can sort of name it and and attempt to possess it. Mm-hmm. And it I mentioned that's it's about right? control. I think you know? it is about control, and and we do this all the time, right? When we when we in, whenever we buy anything alien related. Um, we possess the alien, right? We, we, we subconsciously allow ourselves to possess this other mm. that we have no control over. That's why you can, you know, buy an alien sticker and put on your laptop and be like, yes, you know, it's an alien. I own it. You kind of, it kind of gives you a comfort in a sense. Um, but if it's something that you cannot know because it's so opposite of us, um, you can't identify it. You can't have power over it. Right. Mm, yeah. I'm reminded of the in, in sort of the Bible and, and um, uh, sort of the common idea of, of whenever a priest needs to do an exorcism, the first thing the priest needs to do is is demand what the name of the demon is. Right. Because once you have the name of the demon, you have control over it. Mm. Um, so in the Bible, you have these often moments where, where demons are expelled from people. And the first question asked by the dispeller and, and usually it's Christ, you know, it's like, who are you? Like, tell me your name. And the demon has to tell him his name and and the same thing when priests do exorcisms they they demand to know the the demon's name and the demon eventually tells them the name and then suddenly they can dispel the demon right they can exorcise the demon yeah because they have power over it right identifying something automatically gives you power over that thing Mm -hmm. but if you're dealing with something so uh to use the term alien is wrong but to use this to, to identify you cannot identify something so opposite of us if it's unidentifiable, you have zero control over it. Exactly. Uh, and I think that this is why a lot of people kind of like the ET hypothesis because it allows that person to still have control over the unknown. Un- the unknown. Um, and the phenomenon, I think, is, is a great example of something we don't have control over. Um, and and um, we can't identify it ever. Yep. Um, and it just scares the hell out of people. Absolutely, man. I mean, I if we find the answer to the UFO phenomenon, I really hope it is alien because I can't deal with anything other than that at this point. Well, 
Yeah, I remember we had a conversation. I think this was on um, on Euphemet early on, season one. Euphemet, you and I were on Jim Perry's show or something, right? And yeah. and I think he asked, like, you know, about the extraterrestrial hypothesis. And I think I think we sort of said, you know, we would we'd really like it to be aliens because we can we can sit down and have dinner with them and have conversations, right? Where yeah. if it's anything else, we're screwed. <laughs> it's so true. Uh, well, you know. Going back to that idea of power, um, that really resonated with me in terms of who we give power to answer these things for us. And a lot of the times that's the uh, the scientific community. You know, in asking the alien question and beyond, you covered this pretty heavily in the book, too. We view scientists as superior, you know, kind of to the rest of society at times. And there's a lot of hardcore UFO believers who... <laughs> in my opinion, ironically, are skeptical of the scientific community because they believe they are there to disprove the UFO phenomenon and live in some rigid and objective reality. It's a phantom war, is what I called mm-hmm. it in my own book, that we've sort of created between us and the scientists. And I was so happy to see that you broke this down way more eloquently than I did uh, with the work of Fritz Haber. Could you maybe tell us why you decided to use this as an example um, in tackling the scientific community in your book? Yeah, yeah, it was interesting. I think we often perceive the pursuit of science as being a purely objective act. Mm-hmm. Um, we often view, view one, the act of science as being totally objective, which I think is fraudulent or uh, is a false claim. Um, and we also view sort of scientists as being objective people, which is funny um, because people are never objective. <laughs> so, so we, we, we paint science as, as this, this idea that, that um, so long as it's done well, it's always right and it's always just and it's always true. And it, it's funny because scientists at the end of the day are just people. And, and, and science, all it really is, is a collection of people. Um, there's no such thing as science outside of people themselves. Um, if people do not exist, science would not exist. Um, and the thing about people is we're all incredibly subjective. Um, we, we, we function in our daily lives and our daily lives kind of build meaning for us, right? Like I mentioned with Derrida, language forms the basis of meaning and science functions upon language. All science requires language for science to happen, for science to occur. The scientific method itself requires language in order to be a process. So if language itself is subjective because language is subjective we have agreed to make certain things be words and sentences and 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 ideas and and meaning um this is purely a subjective act how can science then be totally objective um if 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 science's entire foundation rests upon something subjective there's no way science can be objective Mm -hmm. not totally now that uh, again I, i i'm a big fan of science i love science like you know the fact that planes fly and you know, gravity's a thing and the earth is round. That makes me happy. Um, so wait, wait, I'm not wait, saying... Wait, 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 The earth is round? Now we you, have to have a debate. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you didn't know? Um, so, oh, boy. Know, we are pushing science. some buttons tonight, man. Listen, if a flat earther has a problem, they can come see me. <laughs> like, I, I'm not saying that science isn't important. Like, I, I'm a big fan of science. I'm very pro-science. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think what we need to avoid is is this notion of scientism or the dogma of science. Um, I think often we treat science as something that is 100% true, 
uh, and factual and and objectively so as if it has like some outside of humanity reality when it really doesn't um and and i use the example of, of haber because um you know haber was this interesting cat um he was a scientist uh, a chemist in um who lived in the the early 1900s late well he started the late 1800s early 1900s um and he was a german scientist um and and his invention um that sort of brought him great fame and 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 a bit of fortune was he basically invented um fertilizer um so and 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 various pesticides and stuff like that so so um even today in 2019 his invention that he created in like 1905 or whatever was, I can't remember the exact date. Um, we still use it today in, in regards to fertilizing our crops. So, so Haber is responsible almost from a food standpoint, single-handedly for allowing the human population to one, get to its current size of nearly 8 billion people, um, and, and providing and being able to grow crops to that extent. Um, like, our entire farming industry and agricultural life as a species since the early 1900s um, is a direct result of his invention to to add nitrogen and hydrogen to to fertilizer and then soil, which allows plants to grow more efficiently, healthier, um, and then provide more yield so more people can eat. Um, yet he is also known as the father of chemical warfare. Um, so in the same breath, um, while he is the guy who basically has allowed billions of people to eat and live on this planet, he also single-handedly developed one of the worst weapons in 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 wartime history, which is um, like mustard gas and chlorine gas um, that was used against Allied soldiers in the First World War. Mm. So, so um, <clears throat> when we think about Haber, we often you know view from a scientific standpoint how how great he was and how his his inventions are this objective force for for good yet at the same time um when his country called upon him to to help them win a war he very quickly became not the man who was able to feed billions of people by his invention but to gas millions of people um horribly um like where their lungs turn to liquid mm-hmm. um so so you have this interesting character in Haber where you have a scientist who, who is a scientist, objective, follows the scientific method, yet is willing to use science to kill people on a massive scale, hmm. as well as feed people on a massive scale, right? Like the, the irony and the duality of Haber is, is maddening. Um, it's in fact so maddening that his wife, um, uh, we don't know what happened. We don't know the conversation they had, but as a result of him creating these awful weapons to be used against humans, she killed herself um, in in their garden, in their in, in sort of their backyard. Um, oh, wow. She used his service pistol and, and shot herself because she couldn't be married to a man who who has fed the world and in the same breath, you know, kills people with chemical weapons. Um, and, and Haber himself was, was sort of a bit, I don't, I don't know. He, he was an interesting character because like literally his wife killed herself. And a week later he was on the battlefield testing his new weapon. And he, and he watched it be used for the first time in action against soldiers. Um, so it would be odd to sort of have your wife confront you about your invention. She kills herself in front of you. Um, and then, you then a week later are on the battlefield watching chemical bombs being dropped on, on enemy soldiers and watching yeah. 
drown in chlorine gas. Um, it, it, it's an interesting, yeah, I'm not sure what the word is. It's, it's an interesting version of reality you live in, right? right. So the, the, the point of, of the whole idea is, is that scientists themselves are not sort of these, these, these gods of objectivity. They are very much governed by the politics and the culture they live in. They're governed by their society. Um, and, and if scientists were objective, they wouldn't, Haber would not have, have, have done what he did, I don't think. Um, and, and I think what Haber proves is that when, when, when they're called on, you know, a scientist will, will work for his, his, his nation or his border. Um, and, and in times of peace, he'll, you know, he'll feed the world, but in times of war, he will help destroy that world. So we, we get this, this, this odd slap in the face of scientific objectivity, right? There's, there's nothing objective about science. I, I don't think, I think there's aspects that, that we can sort of say are maybe more objective, mm-hmm. but they're not totally objective. Um, and I, and I want to be cautious when we talk about science because scientists are not bad people. Science itself is not a bad thing. Um, but what is bad is when science believes itself to be the only answer to anything. And, and what road does that lead us down? Um, so I, I want to, to sort of assert that the dogma of science is what's dangerous. Scientism, the religion of science, is, is a dangerous act because we lose a lot of things. Um, and unfortunately, what science quickly forgets is that it requires the rest of us, especially sort of us anthropologists and sociologists and philosophers, to, to be the ethical litmus test, right? Um, mm-hmm. What is science without ethics and morals? Um, it's the atomic bomb and it's chemical weapons and it's biological warfare. Like that, that is science gone awry. That is when science does not have the ethical guide that it needs. And we kind of fall down this slope of, of, of really humans doing really bad things to each other when we remain completely objective. Um, and, and at times I think Haber himself, you know, viewed his weapon as, as an interesting project, right? You know, he would watch thousands and thousands and thousands, rather thousands and thousands of, of British and French soldiers literally being drowned in chlorine gas. Cause they'd never experienced this weapon before. Like the first time the weapon was tested, no one knew that this was even a possibility. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly like, it was like a regiment of soldiers was hit by this bomb and, and the chlorine gas hit them. And it was like, no one had a gas mask, right? Because it wasn't, a weapon that was invented yet. Yeah. Uh, and you can imagine as Haber watching this go down, was he sitting there feeling sorry for them or was he sitting there being like, Oh, you know, I have to adjust the effectiveness of this because they're not dying fast enough. Or <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, 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 uh, like is he watching ants die? Right. Versus. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's frightening to me when, when we view science as this objective thing, because the problem with, with objectivity, one is it, you need the subjective. You need people to see love and you need people to care about one another for science to be actually good. Um, we have enough examples of science being evil, right? Not because science itself is evil, but because it, it behaves objectively. And that's when, you know, stuff like the atomic bomb gets built. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, tying it back to the whole UFO question, you, you do a good job of showing that science is not the be-all, end-all answer to the UFO phenomenon. It is going to come from the sociologists, the psychologists, the academics, the historians, the scientists in both the hard and soft sciences. Yeah. It's going to come from everyone and every, everyone, anyone, and no one. 
Probably. I, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and the UFO and the, like the UFO phenomenon, I think, is, is is a big reflection of of our lives, right? So, I don't think science is the answer to everything. Period. You know, like I think right. there are a lot of ways to the truth. Science is 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 um, a path to get to the truth, and it's a great path. Um, but you need all of those other paths to to kind of guide science as well. You know, mm-hmm. um, because otherwise, science can go often in any direction. And, and it can be good and it can be bad. Exactly. Well, man, I can't think of a better way to wrap up sort of the the idea of the book. And we really did only scratch the surface. I mean, I was furiously going through this just to um, so that we could make this interview happen as soon as we <laughs> did, because I wanted to be the first to talk about your new book. You are, too. You officially win the race. Boom. See, that's that's why I did it. I can't wait to go back and actually dive deeper and um, and really dig into the meat of it. So we'll have to have you back on for that. But I did want to sort of bookend this with another endeavor that you're doing uh, besides Terra Obscura, and that's Cafe Obscura, your YouTube channel series, which has really taken off. You're getting some really interesting people on there that, you know, we're not used to hearing from in the UFO community, which I think is very, very important. So would you mind sort of telling us a little about Cafe Obscura? (laughs) I think what what Cafe Obscura is, is it's an extension of the blog. Um, and, and I think sometimes the blog, um, gets maybe a little too, too heady and, and, um, you, you kind of lose people. Um, and sometimes it's easier just to have a conversation, um, sort of over audio and video and, and not kind of write out your thesis and then a giant essay. Cause oftentimes I'll start a tear obscure post, like my blog posts and I'm like, okay, I'm going to do a short one. And then it ends up being like 2,500 words. And, and suddenly people just don't want to sit and read through that. Mm-hmm. And people are much more willing to sit through an hour long YouTube show. Um, if they're interested. And, and so that's, that's sort of how it started was this idea just to make my content a little more approachable to sort of a more mainstream public. Um, but then I also wanted to have a a show that no one really else in the UFO community was doing. I think that in the UFO community, there's a lot of hesitation to talk politics and to talk um, issues that some people find potentially, I don't know, like impolite. You know, um, people don't like talking about politics in the UFO community. People don't like talking about gender in the UFO community. People don't like talking about race and, and race politics in the UFO community, which is really, I think, important. These are, these are things that I think need to be talked about. And just because no one has talked about them in the past doesn't make them any less relevant. <clears throat> so Cafe Obscura is a project um, right now that, that is aimed, one, I think, at pissing people off, but two, at, at getting to the root of, of how the UFO community functions and, and the broader paranormal community. It's not just about UFOs. It's sort of, in general, paranormal. Um, and to, to engage with, with interesting people in the study who, who don't usually get a lot of airtime um, and who don't often get a chance to talk about their stories and, and their opinions and their politics. Because at the end of the day, I think the UFO community often becomes an echo chamber. Um, Absolutely. You know, the, oftentimes what happens is the same people get interviewed over and over and over again. And those are the messages that become the, the, the UFO community, really. Like, and when you think about, you know, 
how the mainstream and the popular media interprets the UFO community, it's often through the voices of a very small handful of people. Um, the people who constantly get interviewed, the people who constantly appear on television, the people who constantly appear in magazines and in newspapers, um, and, and are kind of like really are representatives to the broader community and the broader culture, pop culture. Um, and the problem is they have their message and that's fine, you know, good for them. That's what it should be. But the UFO community is much richer than that. Um, we are a group of people who are concerned about the same things any community is concerned about. Um, what are the, the, the issues, the political issues in our community and that we face? What are the gender issues that we face? And, 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 and how do we, how do we view ourselves and how do other people view us? Um, you know, can we be critical of ourselves, um, and, and not fall victim to, to just not wanting to talk about it? And I think that that's kind of what occasionally happens. I think we, we don't want to upset our viewership or our listenership. Um, so we don't touch things because, people will view them as offensive or, or just uncomfortable and they won't watch or listen. And I think that's what Cafe Obscura tries to fill in. Um, it deals with those issues of, of, of race and gender, which is coming up next week, no, two weeks. Um, and it deals with issues of, of, of economics and it deals with issues of class and, and, and poverty, um, and all that within our community. So it's, it's an interesting little project, um, I know some people have told me already they don't like it. They they think politics have ha, has no business in the UFO discourse. I don't necessarily agree with them. I think the UFO I think the UFO phenomenon itself and UFO discourse itself is political. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I think that's a nonsense claim. Um, I think there's 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 going to be a lot of pushback. But again, I'm sort of I, I I have the luxury of being a relatively small player in the UFO field, so I can say whatever the hell I want and nobody cares. Um, so that's kind of enjoyable and freeing. Um, so yeah, it's been interesting. It's, it, I've only had maybe what five episodes now and the next big one I'm having Alison Jornlin on who's in my book and we're going to talk about gender politics in, in the UFO and paranormal communities. Um, so that should be a, an interesting one to get, you know, a few feathers ruffled. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's sort of no nonsense, no bullshit, just, you know, having a conversation, uh, like you would over a cup of coffee. And that's kind of the theme, right? The, the idea of just a couple people meeting in a coffee shop, uh, hence a cafe and, um, just shooting the shit about UFOs I love and it, paranormals. Man. Yeah. I absolutely love it. And I'm seeing the YouTube channel growing every week and, uh, the comments becoming more and more so i mean that's that's all you can ask for is people are talking it's not it's not that echo chamber any longer so you're starting the conversations whether it's in the blog in the book or on youtube which is great so i mean i have to thank you for letting allowing me to be the first to sort of get you on here to talk about the book when can we expect that and uh where will we be able to find it Sure. Yeah. So right now the book is um, just sort of being typeset in the, the last, it's in the last stages. So I'm hoping it will hit Amazon um, and all the other sort of major booksellers, like the online ones, like Barnes and Noble and all that stuff. Um, so anywhere you can kind of buy a book online, um, it will, should be out within, I would say a week or two. That's kind of where we're at. So it'll either be next week or the week after is when that book will be available for purchase. Um, and, uh, the, my best advice would be to follow me on social media because I will obviously sort of 
be promoting it. Um, and then uh, all the links will be there. So I, uh, you can follow me on the social medias at MJ Benias. Um, that's my Instagram, Twitter, and then on Facebook, you'll find me just by punching in MJ Benias. Uh, or you can visit my website. I've got multiple, but really where the book is kind of, kind of rest as links to purchase is just mjbenias.com. Uh, and just kind of go there, uh, every once in a while, uh, over the next two weeks. And it should pop up once I kind of have more formal information for my publisher, but we're looking at the next week or two, uh, guaranteed. So awesome. yeah, we're, we're about a week and a half, two weeks away, which I'm really excited to kind of finally get it out there. Um, but social media is the best place to, to kind of stay on top of that as well as my YouTube channel. It's just youtube.com forward slash backslash forward slash forward slash mj benias <laughs> so if you just youtube.com forward slash mj benias you can find my youtube channel there and uh, you can subscribe or whatever and i'll obviously kind of post stuff about my book there as well so there's um a lot going to be coming out within the next two weeks concerning the book um, so you can find me there and my website my blog obviously www.terraobscura.net is always kind of producing blog posts but it's been a little slow I've, I've been super busy with the book and this youtube thing it's kind of invaded my life so the blog posts have been coming a little slow <laughs> i know the feeling man I, it's, just, it's just overwhelming yeah producing content in any genre or format is extremely time consuming i wish people could see how much time i actually spend editing a you know, an hour-long episode. It could take days sometimes. Depends oh, on the guest. God. Really depends on the guest. But, you know, I'm so excited. Again, the book is The UFO People, A Curious Culture. I can't wait for that. And I can't wait to get you back on for our next installment of Summer in the Whiskey. So thank you again, MJ. Uh, Ryan, it's always an honor. Um, I will listen. You shoot me a text. I'll be on your show anytime. Doesn't matter. I'm there. Cheers. Thank you. That is it for this week's episode. Again, thank you so much to MJ Benias for coming on again. We'll be sure to have another Somewhere in the Whiskey coming up very soon. In the meantime, you can check out all of our work at SomewhereInTheSkies.com, including past episodes, contact information, articles, and everything in between. We're also on Twitter at SomewhereSkies and Instagram at SomewhereSkiesPod. Please take a few moments to rate review, and subscribe to Somewhere in the Skies on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The official Somewhere in the Skies store is open at tpublic.com. That's T-E-E-public.com, and just search for the Somewhere in the Skies store. We have plenty of cool merchandise waiting for you right now. Be sure to join me next week for our 100th episode of Somewhere in the Skies. I can't wait to share that with you very soon. I'll see you here next week. And remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit entertainmentonepodcast.com. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.